All right, we're going to get started today with the 116th Psalm. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord, now in the presence of all his people. Precious is the sight of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for being allowed to come out here and worship you in uh, freedom in uh, this beautiful green cathedral that you've set up for us. And I thank you for the wonderful weather you've given us and uh, just all of the little creatures that are around here singing, the crickets and the crows and the uh, 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 woodpeckers that are up there pecking on the tree over there. And uh, we just thank you for all of these things and how they come from your open hand of grace and how we can look to you for the food we eat and for every wonderful blessing of our week, of our uh, time with our family, of our time with our friends and at work, the work of our hands that you've blessed. We thank you for all of these things. We want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you are due because you are infinitely worthy of it. You're a superb and just beautiful creator. And just let us worship you in spirit and in truth and in the beauty of holiness. May your name be praised. And we say these things in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, we got a couple announcements before we uh, get into the sermon today. The first is that we have no church on the beach next week. I've announced this a couple times and uh, uh, I will be up in Massachusetts, so we'll have no church on the beach. And um, of course, I'm still looking for a regular pastor's job. If one comes open, if you hear of anything anywhere, um, I am looking for a job that I can preach at. I'm not interested in being a, a youth minister or anything like that. But uh, anyway, uh, if you hear of anything come open anywhere, that would be wonderful. Uh, baptism, if anybody has never been baptized scripturally, being submersed in the uh, water and uh, raised back out of the water as a picture of Christ's death and resurrection, we can do that anytime. There's plenty of water over there, and I've got a suit in my bag over here. So uh, baptism is always an option any day of the week. And um, I'd like to uh, ask you all to remember Paul and Elaine in prayer. A, they are missionaries over in Japan, and uh, we miss them sorely. And also for all the people that are normally here that are traveling. I know we've got my brother. He's uh, uh, doing something, I believe, with the military again this week, which seems to come up quite often. And... Um, uh, we've got uh, Darlene and some other people and some families that are traveling. So I would ask that uh, you just remember them in prayer as you go throughout the week and uh, uh, just uh, be safe in your own self as well. But uh, 
Anyway, we'll go ahead and do a New Testament reading before we uh, get into, uh, we'll do a New Testament reading and then an Old Testament reading and then we'll get into our sermon. So the New Testament reading is from Romans 2, 1 through 16. And uh, I'm not going to get into any deep commentary with it, but we'll just evaluate it real quickly as we go along. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man, whoever you are, uh, who, who are you to judge? I'm sorry, I can't see very well right now. It takes a while for my eyes to get uh, uh, accustomed to the, uh, the shadow on the uh, Bible from here. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O oh man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Paul's making an obvious application from chapter 1 that all people are fallen, all people are in Adam, and here we're doing things that are uh, not appropriate in the sight of the Lord. And then we go around and we point fingers at other people that are doing other things, maybe not the same sins that we're committing, but he's saying you pointing your finger at them and judging them actually brings condemnation on yourself because you are being judged when you judge, you're showing that there is a righteous standard by which we should be living. Verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. In God, there is only truth. Jesus makes that clear as does the rest of the Bible. He, he is the embodiment of truth when he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when God judges, it is in absolute truth. There's no untruthfulness in God. There's no change in God. His moral standards are set. And whether we like to admit them or not, that's just the way it is. Abortion is a crime, according to the Bible. It doesn't matter what we think about the issue. The only thing that matters is what God thinks about the issue. Uh, verse 3, and do you think this, O man, such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. We will be judged by God. Believers are in a different category than unbelievers, but we will all face God for judgment. Believers will face judgment for rewards and losses of rewards from the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Non-believers will be judged and will be condemned. As a matter of fact, they're condemned already, according to Jesus in John 3.18. But uh, they will receive that final judgment and then their final condemnation. Verse 4, um, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Of course, we're going to speak about this today. You'll see this in Genesis chapter 15, that God doesn't want anybody to perish, and so he gives them time to think about his nature, to uh, you know, pursue him, and hopefully find him. And as I said, when we get to the part about the Amorites, you will see that God wants people to repent and turn to him, and he gives them time, and he gives them every possible opportunity to do so. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent, impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. And there he quotes the 62nd Psalm. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath which is just exactly what i said the people that are saved will get one type of judgment those who aren't will receive another type of judgment uh verse nine tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also of the greek paul says this elsewhere as you'll see throughout the new testament there is no difference between jew and gentile in the body of christ and without the body of christ concerning judgment 
there is a difference between a Jew and a Gentile. He wouldn't make the point unless by using the word Jew, there must be a difference between Jew and Gentile. It's like saying there's no difference between male and female. The very fact that he makes a distinction between the two means that there is a distinction. But in the body of Christ, there is no difference between us in our salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. But verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's This is something that people don't like to talk about. That every person on earth is in Adam and they stand condemned because of Adam. The people that are outside of the covenant law still have a law written on their own hearts. And Paul will demonstrate that and prove it later. But he's saying that if you don't, just because you don't have the law of Moses doesn't mean that you are saved or that there's a possibility of you being saved. You'll just perish apart from that law. But he goes on to say here, um, uh, as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. That's the second half of it. People that have the law of Moses and that break or violate the law of Moses will be judged by the law of Moses. But we all stand condemned already because we're in Adam. Christ came to change that, to move us from Adam to himself. Verse uh, 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And this is something that I bring up from time to time, is that there are lots of people that know the law. And I'm not talking about just the Old Testament law, I'm talking about Jesus. And they stand in seminaries and they teach the Bible and they stand in the pulpit and they teach the Bible and they say things, but they don't have him in their heart. And as Paul says here, it is not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. They will be justified. Just because you know something doesn't mean that it saves you. You have to have the conversion inside of you in order to be saved or to be justified. And that goes on every level, not just the law of Moses, it goes on the law of Christ, it goes on any law. Just because you know something doesn't save you or keep you from that judgment. I know not to do wrong in America. I know not to steal from 7-Eleven. Just because I know that doesn't mean that I'm not going to get caught when I steal from 7-Eleven. There's the point. Okay, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. And that's what I was talking about a few moments ago. People already have these things written on their heart. They know not to murder. They know not to steal. They know not to lie. And when they do these things, they prove that there is a standard by which we will all be judged. The law was simply given to codify that and to show us how utterly sinful sin is and then to lead us to Jesus Christ. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. This is all people. We have it written in our hearts. Uh, where was I? Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Nobody is going to be able to go up to the throne of God and say what you are doing is unfair. That is simply not going to happen. Everything that God judges will be judged in absolute fairness and there will be no question about it when it's done because it's already already written on our hearts we stand accusing ourselves when we do wrong excusing ourselves when we do right God knows and we also know but God knows in an infinite way there will be no impartiality it will be completely fair 
Okay, one more thing. Instead of reading a psalm before the sermon today, we're going to go uh, to Exodus chapter 15 and read verses 1 through 18. This is the great uh, song of Moses of the redemption of the Israelites after they came out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them in your mercy. You have led them forth, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah for that. All right, now you know that before I give my sermon every week, I like to give just a couple uh, tidbits from this day in history. Uh, today is, what is today? It's the 12th of July, 13th of July? 15th. 15th of July. Okay, just so the people on the video know what's happening on the 15th of July today in history. In 1099, Jerusalem fell to the Crusaders. Now, last week I mentioned that on that Sunday, it was the history of Jerusalem being surrounded by the Crusaders. So a week and a day later, Jerusalem fell to the Crusaders. And then it went back into Muslim hands and it went back and forth for all these hundreds and hundreds of years. There was death and there was destruction because of a misunderstanding of what God was doing in human history and that he has reserved the land of Israel for the Jewish people, something we're going to see today. But because of a misunderstanding of that and thinking that the church has replaced Israel, these battles went on and many people died in just in the regular course of human events. And then in 1870, Georgia became the last of the Confederate states to be readmitted into the Union. So uh, I thought it was South Carolina, but apparently that's not correct. It is Georgia. But I think South Carolina was the first one to leave the Union or whatever. Something uh, about South Carolina that made them really uh, struggle through the Civil War. And a lot of uh, women were raped that maybe otherwise wouldn't have. A lot of uh, towns were burnt that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been burnt down. 
uh, but apparently Georgia was the last of the Confederate states to be readmitted. In 1876, this is something that doesn't interest me at all, but if you like sports, George Washington Bradley of St. Louis pitched the first no-hitter in a baseball in a 2-0 win over Hartford. And then in 1940, and this is something, I'm going to wait for this helicopter to go by. Everybody wave at the helicopter. There we go. In 1940, a guy named Robert Wadlow died at the age of 22. And the reason why I bring him up, there's lots of things that always happen on this day in history. But as a boy, I used to look at the uh, uh, Genesis World Records. And I'd, I'd, every year I'd get the new edition and I'd read everything that people had done. And this guy here was the tallest person to ever live, at least outside of the Bible. Maybe some of the biblical characters were taller. But in modern history, Robert Wadlow was just this massive person. And his body could not contain his weight any longer, and he simply died at the age of 22. But by that time, he was 8 feet, 11 and 1 tenth inches tall, and he weighed 439 pounds. He was just a massive human being. But that's this day in history, and now we'll go on to the sermon, which is from Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 21. And this is the Lord's covenant with Abraham. The Bible is full of stories about people, places, and circumstances. And as we read it, we can often get so caught up in the story that we forget what the purpose of it is and why it's placed in the Bible. We all have a million stories of our own lives as well. Although some of us are boring, if you know me outside of what I do for the Lord, my life is exceptionally boring, and there are also boring people in the Bible. And then some of us have really super duper exciting lives. If you know the people that used to attend church on the beach that moved recently, Sergio and Rhoda, they had these really super duper exciting lives. And there are people in the Bible, like King David, that also had a very exciting life. The difference between us and them, though, is that these people are mentioned in the Bible and we're not. God has chosen specific people and events in their lives, boring or exciting, to help us understand what he is doing and why he is doing what he is doing. Eventually, we are going to get to the book of Leviticus, and we'll be going through page after page after page of what seems repetitious, complicated, outdated, and to many people, downright uninteresting. And I've noticed time and again, people will email me and they'll say, I'm going to make a commitment to reading the Bible. And they're all excited about it. I've actually mailed Bibles to people that couldn't afford their own. And they say, oh, I love the Bible. I'm reading it. And I'll get these emails from them about Genesis. And pretty soon after a couple of weeks, I notice that they don't email anymore. And I know exactly what's happened. They've gotten to the middle of the book of Exodus where things start getting very rote and tedious and they've quit reading their Bible. And what do they do? They fall back on, well, I know that Jesus loves me. And in one respect, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It is true. But in another respect, it is the farthest thing from reality for the believer. Understanding what the Bible is trying to tell us and why it's trying to tell us these things is like understanding your computer better. As long as you have the basics of computing down and your computer is working fine, then, well, I've got the Internet, I've got a couple of news sites, I've got Facebook, I've got a weather site, I'm good. But when things stop working, that's when trouble begins for us. And just like that, when your life stops going well, suddenly the thought, Jesus loves me, isn't enough. It didn't stop being true, but now you need to evaluate the process much more to understand 
why bad things are happening to the person that Jesus loves. There are a couple of ways that you can do this. You can go to your pastor if you have a pastor. He can brush you up on the whole, it's going to work out okay in the end thing. Or you can take your troubles and you can post them on Facebook and you can hope that people will keep saying nice things to you until those troubles go away. And I know people that do this. Or you can go to a prayer group or to a church and have your name included on a prayer group and you can hope that people will pray you through your troubles. Once again, though, I'd like you to think this through. Pastors, the pastor that you went to, could be wrong on what he's telling you. Most pastors in the world disagree on even the minor points of doctrine. So how much more in the important issues which affect your Jesus really loves me theology? The people on Facebook will get tired of you making unhappy posts. I assure you of that, and I hate to admit this, but I have actually blocked people on Facebook because all I see all day long is constant downer, constant downer, constant downer. And some people just simply don't want to have to face that after a while. And it becomes, like I say, just a bummer. And most people don't want to be down all the time. They want to be lifted up by other people. So if you are constantly saying down things, it may affect your walk with the Lord. Okay, and then one other thing is that if you give your name to a prayer group, a prayer group, that can be a problem as well. Because I assure you that most people that are on prayer groups that say that they are praying for you are not. That's just the human nature. They say, I'll pray for you. They may do it one time and then that's it. And then those who do pray for you, if they are not saved, I got to tell you what, their words are going nowhere. If somebody is not saved, they can pray for you all day long and it is simply missed in the, the ether. That's all it is. Because according to the Bible, the prayers of the unrighteous are an abomination to God. And if you don't believe me, it's right there in the book of Proverbs. It says, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, which means the Bible, even his prayer is an abomination. So what are you going to do when your computer stops working? You're going to get the manual or you're going to get online if you still have internet capability and you're going to diagnose the problem to get you reconnected to whatever is wrong. But if not, then you get the manual and you push the button on the modem, unplug this, do that, and eventually you will probably get your computer working. And when your life is having troubles, if you are smart, you will say, I know where the answer to these troubles is. And you will pull out your Bible, which you are already familiar with because you read it every day of your life, and you will refresh your memory about how to handle the difficult things that are going on in your life. And that brings us to our text verse for today, which is from Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. It's 176 verses long. It's broken down into 22 octaves or sets of eight verses based on the Hebrew Aleph Bet. It's something that I read every single day of my life is one of those octaves. This is verses 74 and 75. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. I know, O oh Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Yes, we do have afflictions, even as faithful Christians. But those are, afflictions are given to us because God is trying to build us up in character and reliance on him. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought from Genesis 15 today is, How shall I know, Lord? Today we're going to look at a most unusual rite which is recorded in the Bible. It's called cutting a covenant, and its significance is not to be taken lightly. 
before we get to our first verse of the day, though, let's go back and we're going to read the first six verses of chapter 15 to refresh ourselves on what happened then. After these things, now we're going to have to go back even further because after these things is referring to something that happened before. That was chapter 14, where Lot was taken captive after the, the battle of the four kings from the east met with the five kings from Canaan. Abram went after Lot, rescued him, brought him back, and then Abram met the man Melchizedek, and after that he met with the king of Sodom. That is what the after these things are referring to. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. In those verses, we discovered once again the very source of righteousness for the people of the world. It is the imputed righteousness of God, which comes from faith in his promises and in what he has and what he will accomplish for his people. When we get to those tough to understand why they're there verses in the Bible, we will be able to look back at chapter 15 of Genesis and we will be able to understand better that whatever these things mean, these tough to understand verses, the problem has already been resolved because it was resolved for Avram and so it must be resolvable for us as well. And it will be. All we need to do when we get to those verses is to get through them and get to the New Testament and we will understand the larger picture which leads us right back to Genesis chapter 15. We are righteous by faith, but we will understand it more clearly because we see that it is faith in Jesus and what he did. Genesis 15 is just looking forward to that concept. Hold on to this knowledge that I'm giving you now because the law and all of its tedious sacrifices and demands does serve a purpose. And we talked about it during the sermon last week. God does not waste breath or words. Everything he says is for the purpose of revealing the greatness of himself and of the marvelous workings of Jesus Christ in our own lives. And we will see that righteousness before God cannot come from us because we're already fallen and we are already separated from him. That's what I talked about and that's what Paul wrote about in Romans just a couple minutes ago. We learn this in chapter 3 of Genesis and we are going to continue to learn it all the way through the Bible. It is by an imputation or an external granting of righteousness that we are reconciled to God. This justification by faith alone, a term that Paul uses, must be emphasized. Because if we somehow believe that what we do, our works, plays a part in our righteousness, we deny the perfect justice of the Lord. And we destroy the only basis which we can come before him and be close to him. And that is faith alone. If God were to declare any person on earth just and righteous based on deeds, then Jesus was lying in Matthew 5. Here's what he said. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our deeds are already tainted with this imperfection. 
So how can we be perfect just as our Father in Heaven is perfect? By faith in Him and what He's done. I'll explain that again towards the end of the sermon. But remember that God declared Avram righteous simply by believing Him. Therefore, it is faith in what God has promised and what God has done that made Him righteous and that will make each one of us righteous. We come to verse 7 of chapter 15. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. In verse 5, which we just read a minute ago, it said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then in verse 6, it said, And he, Avram, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. Nothing else is recorded here because nothing else happened. God made a promise to Avram, and Avram had faith in that promise. Righteous, you are now righteous. After crediting Avram with righteousness, we come to verse 7, and the Lord reminds him of who he is. I am the Lord. I am the self-existent creator who spoke the entire universe into existence. I heat the day with the sun. I call the stars into brightness at night. I am the Lord, the God of power and of perfection. I am also the one who saved you out of the greedy flame of hell when I called you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. If you remember from a sermon all the way back at that time, Ur means flame. It's a picture of a life in hell. I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And not only did I call you out of there, but I brought you. I carried you on eagle's wings from the place of fire and destruction to this land, the land of your inheritance. I have brought you this far and I will be with you and I will guide you always. The Lord glories in what he has accomplished as both an act of power and of grace. Yes, Avram did get on his donkey and he put his family on their donkeys and they headed out, but it is the Lord that both told him to do so and who ensured that they would make it safely to the promised land. And when he speaks about the land, he doesn't just say that he would give it to him, but that he would give it to him as an inheritance. This is the surest title to the action. And we see in that the providential hand of God and his secret and yet his gracious intents in all that he's done for Avram and all that he is going to do for Avram. Avram is a picture of each one of us. And the Lord is repeating what he has done to show us what he will do. We stand as human beings in the flames, which are represented by Ur, right where Avram was called from. And we are called and brought out of those flames by God. We cannot conceive of the great workings of God until the events have come to pass. The question is, how many of you knew before you called on Christ that you would ever do so? I gotta tell you, until the moment that I called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I had no idea that that would ever come in my life. I could never have imagined what God would have done in me then and what he is continuing to do in me now. And that is the way that it works in our lives. Every moment of history unfolds in exactly the same way. It's all leading to an end which is more wonderful than even this promise to Avram. In what is only a good picture of what's ahead, God uses Avram as an example of us to show us the greater glory which is coming in the person of Jesus and what he will do for eternity for all of us. That brings us to verse eight. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? The Lord has got done 
telling Avram everything that he has done for him and everything that he will do for him in the time ahead. And he's told it in a single, concise, and perfectly full explanation. This brings about Avram's obvious question. Adonai God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? I mean, he's standing right there speaking with the Creator, who has already fulfilled the first half of what he said. Of course he should worry about the rest. Jesus, you said that you'd forgive me if I called on you, and yes, you did forgive me. You've also promised that you will never leave me nor forsake me. How do I know that's true? It is the constant battle in our lives of believing God in what he has done and at the same time wondering, is he capable of following through on the rest? In Avram's case, though, I want to give him a break. It should not be seen as a question of doubt. Instead, he's looking for a confirmation of his faith, which has already been expressed in the promise. And at other times in the Bible, people do ask God for a sign. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon asked the Lord for one. Let's take a moment and read that together. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And then King Hezekiah of Israel was given a promise from the Lord, and he also asked for a sign. And in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord made a promise to King Ahaz and then offered a sign to confirm his word. Ahaz declined, he declined, and the Lord actually gave him the sign anyway, which was the coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's Isaiah chapter 7, 14, if I remember correctly, and it says, A virgin shall be born, she shall conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Asking God for a sign is not sinful, but demanding one is, and there is a difference. God has stated in his word that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm so adamant on this particular verse. I quoted almost every sermon. I'm going to read it to you today. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, the moment you believe, you receive, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We have every assurance that that verse is true because God spoke it in his word. We can ask for God for a sign if we wish, and if he provides it, that is fine. And if he doesn't, so be it. However, there are churches and there are seminaries which demand a sign of God, such as speaking in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, then according to them, you have not been baptized into the Holy Spirit which is both contradictory to the Bible and it is a demand upon God. This is both presumptuous and it is sinful. Avram asked for a sign from the Lord and the Lord agreed to give him one. It's verse nine. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. In response to a request for a sign, the Lord tells Avram to bring him five animals. The heifer, the goat, and the ram are all three years old. 
meaning they are fully grown and they are in the prime of life. Avram might have expected a sign from heaven, like speaking in tongues, but God gives him a sign by requesting that he bring what he already has in his possession. A good lesson here is that if you want to speak in tongues, go to a language school and learn Hebrew, Greek, Japanese, Korean, Russian, or whatever language you want to learn and then offer that to the Lord. If you want the assurance of God's favor, then attend to the things which will result in that favor. Only then can you expect to meet God in and through them. My wife is Japanese. She can speak Japanese and she can offer that to the Lord. She can translate the Bible for somebody that needs a verse in Japanese. That is an offering to the Lord which is not presumptuous and it is not sinful. Verse 10, then he brought all of these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. The Bible does not say here that God told Avram to do this. Instead, he just did it. This means that he already understood what was coming and how to get ready for it. The sign of God's promise is the confirmation of the covenant, and it is accomplished in a manner that he was already familiar with. And I want to stop. If anybody needs mosquito uh, spray, I've got some over there because I, I know that there's some mosquito uh, biting some of you. Instead of the innocence of youth that is found in later animal sacrifices during the temple times in Israel, these animals are fully grown, and this indicates the mature nature of the decision and the coming sign of these animals' lives. The sign will be binding to the point of death, as is evidenced by the animals which Avraham slaughters. Verse 11, and when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Avraham drove them away. Avram is standing there waiting for the confirmation of the covenant. And as happens with dead animals, birds of prey came down on them and started to attack them. In order to maintain the purity and keep them from being defiled before the Lord cut his covenant, Avram chases them away. Now the question is, are you going to learn from this verse as a Christian? As Christians, we are waiting on the final completion of our covenant made at the high cost of the life of God's own son. As we wait, we are called living sacrifices by Paul. Here's how he puts it. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The problem though, is that as we wait on the Lord, the unclean birds of the world, like all those crows up there, which are always making all that noise, they come down and they fight against the holy sacrifice. They, it's the sinful thoughts in our lives. It's the wrong living. It's the morally impure lifestyle. But God has shown us that we need to keep away these unclean birds and wait quietly upon the Lord in holiness. And that brings us to our second thought of the day, which is know with certainty. How shall I know, Lord? Know with certainty. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. This is almost a spooky verse to read and to think about. The sun is going down, we have this deep sleep which falls on Avram, and at the same time, there is horror and great darkness in his mind. Now the word for deep sleep here, it's a Hebrew word, terdema. It's only used seven times in the entire Bible. And the last time that we saw it used was the first time that it was used in the Bible. It's when God put Eve to sleep, or I'm sorry, put Adam to sleep, and then took out one of his ribs in order to make Eve. The deep sleep, the setting of the sun, and the horror in the darkness are being used 
in Avram to show the supernatural nature of the darkness and of the sleep and to set up a distinction between this vision and any regular dream that he might have had. The reason for the horror and the darkness is given next, right here in verse 13. Then he said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Earlier, Avram asked, How shall I know, Lord? And in response to the question, the Lord says to Avram, Know certainly. When you have questions of the Lord, and I know that we all do, it's only right to ask him, Lord, how shall I know? And his response will be the same to you every single time. Know certainly. After saying this, he speaks his word to Avram and expects Avram to believe it. He has also spoken his word to you, and he expects each one of you to believe it. How can you know? Pick up your Bible and read it. It is God's word spoken to you as surely as he spoke to Avram. The horror and the darkness that Avram experienced are given to show him what it will be like for his descendants during a time of affliction. Now I wanna tell you, this is an important verse to remember because many people who study their Bible have misinterpreted this verse and one in Exodus chapter 13 to mean that the Israelites would be in Egypt for 430 years. However, this is not the case. I brought this up last week, but because he mentions it a second time, I'm bringing it up again now. This 400-year period is speaking of Abram's descendants from the birth of Isaac to the time of the Exodus. Israel was actually only in Egypt for about 210 years, not 400. And if you want to save yourself the difficulty, because these are difficult passages, it takes a bit of study. I've already done all of the hard work. All you need to do is go to my website, wonderful and the numeral one, wonderfulone.com, and go to the page dwelling in Egypt. And I've got it all laid out for you so that you know that they were not in Egypt for 430 years. That's just not correct. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. This is specifically here speaking about the time in Egypt and the judgment that they would receive. But it is not all inclusive of the previous verse. Rather, the people of Israel were strangers in both Canaan and Egypt for 400 years. After their time in Egypt, we will see that the Israelites are going to plunder the Egyptians at God's, God tells them to do so, and they're gonna come out with a great amount of wealth. And much of this wealth is actually going to be used in the building of the tabernacle where God would meet with them. But some would be used to build a golden calf in opposition to God. Having great possessions often leads to great mistakes. Only when we use our wealth properly is it of any benefit to ourselves. God's gifts may be a blessing, and they are, every one of them, but we can use them in ways which bring a curse. Verse 15, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Avram, right now, why God did this, I don't know, but he promised him a long life, and he got it. And he promised him that he would go to his fathers in peace, and he got it. We're going to see in the end, when we get to that chapter, that Avram is going to live to be 175 years old, which to me is a pretty long life, and he will go to his grave in peace. Unfortunately for each of us, though, we have to wait to see how our end is going to come about. Because of this, it's right that we live each day as best as we can, and we spend our time focusing on the Lord. Any moment could be our last, and so every moment should be that way. The guy that died down here just a couple hours ago that they're still probably wrapping up on the beach had no idea 
that his life would end today, unless he killed himself. We don't know what happened. Maybe he drowned out there. But unless he killed himself, he had no idea he was going off to meet his maker. And that's the same thing with each one of us. We may go swimming. We may get bit by a bug that crawls up on our foot right here, and it may kill us. We don't know. So we need to live our lives as if this is our last day. We don't have the blessing that Avram had. Implied in the words that he would go to his fathers in peace is that his fathers still exist. In other words, it implies the immortality of the soul. If this sounds like a stretch, consider two things. First, God said it in a comforting manner. In other words, death without continued existence has no comfort for us and therefore continued existence is implied. Secondly, Jesus said this to the people of Israel, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Because God is eternal, all are alive to him. If he speaks of Avram, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense, as Jesus did, and if the dead are raised and they are always alive to God, then they are always alive. Just put it together. So when we go off to where we're going, we are not going to be in some eternal sleep waiting for the final judgment. There is a consciousness about us when we die. Our soul is separate from our body. I saw a post on Facebook this morning, as a matter of fact, which is very interesting. It's a C.S. Lewis quote, and it says, we are not a body with a soul. We are a soul with a body. Now, the two go together, and Paul makes that known in the New Testament. He says that the soul without a body is naked, okay? But we are a soul first because the soul is eternal. The body is something temporal that is united to our soul. Very interesting concept. C.S. Lewis is a great mind. If you ever get a chance to read any of his writings, I do recommend them. Verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And I brought this up in our, this day in history, I believe, maybe I brought it up in our Bible reading, but this is an important verse to remember. I'm going to read it again and then we'll analyze it. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, meaning the descendants of Abraham for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There are several times in the Bible that we see the concept of sin heaping up in a land. As sins are committed, they reach a point where there is no longer a remedy for the people of the land and they are destroyed. We see this here. We also see it in the conduct, the destruction, and the exile of Israel twice in history, and we see it in the rise and the fall of the nations all the time. It is a truth that simply cannot be ignored. And in Numbers 33, it says it as explicitly as could be possible. Here's what it says. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed, except by the blood of him who shed it. As I've said many times before, and I will say this, I don't care who I offend with this, the crime of abortion is a crime of blood. There is no atonement for the land which sheds innocent blood except by the blood of those who shed it. And that does not mean we can go out and kill abortion doctors. We can't do that because all we're doing is we're committing another crime. But those people must pay for their penalties. The nation must repent or the nation will be destroyed. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And this verse makes it absolutely clear. At the same time, in this verse is also an understanding of the mercy of God. If one sin of Adam 
was enough to condemn the entire human race, then we can see the immense mercy of God in allowing 400 years for the Amorites to live, to enjoy life, and hopefully to search for God and to find him. Exactly what we were talking about in Romans. Instead of destruction and immediately granting the promise to Abram, he allows his own chosen people to suffer trials while the inhabitants of Canaan are given the benefits of enjoying his land. Anyone who cannot see the wisdom, the graciousness, and the mercy of God in this verse has both a warped and a deviant sense of who God is. He is the same God in both Testaments. He loves the people of the world, and he wants us to turn to him. Finally, there is something that we will only see later in the Bible in this verse, that the Amorite is the chief nation among those in the land who will receive first and full judgment for their deviant living. That's why he brings them up here, and that's why they're the first to be destroyed and completely wiped out when Israel comes into the conquest of Canaan. Verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. When the people of the Mideast in these ancient times joined in a pact, they would follow the same rites as we see here. They would slaughter an animal, cut its neck, bleed it out, and then they would cut it in two, and they would pass through the pieces. In order to validate his word, meaning God, his word, in a way which Abram would understand, he follows this practice. However, Abram didn't pass through the pieces. Only the Lord did. This means the promise is one-sided, and it is unconditional. Avram is not bound to anything. This goes back to him being declared righteous by faith. But the Lord binds himself to this promise. The significance of the animals being cut in two is that it signifies the penalty for failing to keep this covenant. This is the purpose of cutting a covenant. It is a binding action with the severest consequences for failing to live up to it. The smoking oven and the burning torch represent the protection and the promise of God. The smoke represents the destruction of those who would afflict his people, the 400 years that he speaks of, to whom the promise is made, the people of Israel, and the burning torch is the consuming fire which would bring about the destruction. At the same, same time as being an instrument of destruction for the enemies of the promise, they are an instrument of protection for the people of the promise. And we are going to see this exact thing happen at the Exodus. This similar manifestation of God is going to be seen, which will lead the people of Israel out of bondage. And at the same time, it will destroy the Egyptians. A column of smoke by day and a column of fire by night. And that is what this is showing. It's taking it in the context of what Avram is seeing so he would understand the affliction of his people. That leads us to verse 18, which is our last verse of the day. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Avram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Ten groups of people are listed here. The land they possess now will be given to Avram's descendants. The covenant is made, it is unconditional, and it is absolutely binding. What God has spoken will come to pass. The land is for Avram, and it is for his descendants. And just so you know, God has also ended, entered into a covenant with each one of us. It is through the glory 
of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. It is he, like the smoking oven and the burning torch which pass through the animals, which passes between God and us so that we don't bear the wrath of God. Like Abram, we also have a sign. It is a deposit. It is a guarantee, which I mentioned in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 a couple minutes ago. It's a guarantee of the good things that God has promised for all believers. It is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to take a moment. I believe everybody here is saved, but there may be somebody watching on the internet that isn't. Let me just take two minutes and explain to you why Christ came and how you can also receive the sealing of the Holy Spirit and be assured, guaranteed of eternal life. It's because we have sinned. We have erred in the presence of God. And a finite sin committed in the human body infinitely separates us from an infinite God. There's nothing we can do to be reconciled to God. And the wages of sin, according to the Bible, is death. We die because we sin. But the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is offering his son as payment for the sins that we have committed in the flesh. And if we call on the name of the Lord, is what God asks us to do, to say Jesus is Lord, and to accept him and his payment, we are saved. Jesus Christ can now take his finite human hand and put it on the head of you. And he can take his infinite divine hand and he can put it on his Father. And he can mediate between the two. And he can reconcile us to our Heavenly Father and have eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is by faith and faith alone. So please, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would ask you to do that today. Just surrender your heart to him and ask him to seal you with this Holy Spirit. I have one more thing to read to you. It's a poem I did on these particular verses, and then we'll take communion and we'll be done for the day. This poem is based on Genesis 15. What are the verses? I think they're 7 through 21. It's called, To Your Descendants, I Give This Land. The Lord said to Avram, yes, he did say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur from the land of the Chaldeans where once you did stay. And this land I give to you to inherit, that's for sure. And Avram, being an especially inquisitive sort of man, asked, Lord God, how shall I know I will receive this from your hand? So the Lord said to Avram, yes, this he did say, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old. Also a turtle dove and a young pigeon, bring this way. And Avram brought them all, just as he was told. He cut them in two down the middle, piece, opposite piece. But the birds he did not cut in two. As vultures came down on the carcasses, Avram made them cease. Yes, he drove them away. This is the thing he did do. Now, as the sun was going down, he fell into a dark sleep, and the horror and darkness that came upon him was so deep. And the Lord said to Avram, Know for sure what I say. Your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own, and they will serve them 400 years from that day. But I will judge the nation they serve. My greatness will be shown. They will come out with very many possessions from the people who gave them so many oppressions now as for you you shall go to your father in peace you will be buried when at a good old age your life will cease in the fourth generation your people shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete and it came to pass as the night was drawing near Avram saw something that probably raised him from his seat behold a smoking oven and a burning torch did appear that passed between those pieces he had laid out on that same day, the Lord made a covenant sincere. This promise left Avram without a single doubt. To your descendants I have given this land, 
Yes, it is a present from my gracious hand. And to this day, he has been faithful to Avram's seed. Yes, they dwell in the promised land even now. It is God's land to parcel out so the nations should take heed. God promised it to them. He promised it with a vow. God keeps every promise faithful as he, so don't worry about what will come. It will be okay. God sent his own son just for you and just for me, and he will finish his work in us some glorious day. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the surety of your word. As sure as you spoke to Avram, you spoke to us through the pages of your glorious holy Bible. We thank you for that. We want to give you praise and glory and honor with our lives throughout the week to come. May you ever be praised. And in the name of Jesus, we say this. Amen.